Well, we come this afternoon to the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, and we'll cover the first five verses of uh, Genesis 4. And I was reminded, even this morning, as I was thinking about and praying about this section, that it's often easy to forget the historical setting of Genesis. Genesis, of course, was written by Moses, but it was written several thousand years after the events that are recorded in Genesis. And, uh, and so what was happening, of course, was the Israelites had been in captivity for centuries. And uh, they, God provided the book of Genesis and the other books in the Pentateuch to inform them about the fundamentals that they needed to know uh, so that they would be taught about the character of God, the nature of the gospel, what true worship is like, etc. And so we, we literally have several thousand years of distance between creation and the events of uh, Genesis Three and four, and uh, and the the writing uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit by Moses, but in this section, chapter three and chapter four, and it recurs throughout the book, uh, the gospel is very clearly uh, set forth in some very powerful ways. And my goal today is to make it clear how that is the case, and it also, uh, by way of application we'll touch upon the very important subject of worship. So we'll be talking about that. Um, And throughout the book of Genesis, we learn much about the character of God himself and about the legacy of sin, the the legacy of the fall. So we'll be touching at various points on on all of those dimensions in this brief section that we'll be looking at. But at the end of chapter 3, in verse 24, we have a very powerful statement uh, that... Adam and Eve were literally expelled from paradise. Genesis 3:24. So he, the Lord God himself, drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. That was a very powerful exit. And, it, and the Lord literally drove them out from paradise, from Eden. And uh, so he, he stationed cherubim and this flaming sword that was turning every direction, every which way. The cherubim are described in Exodus 9 and 10 as the bearers of God's holy throne. And uh, you also see them in Ezekiel chapter 1 as living creatures. And they appear in Revelation chapter 4, uh, where John, the, the, the apostle, is permitted to gaze on the throne of God, and he sees the four living creatures as sentinels, guards, so to speak. And the, 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 the cherubim are literally the guards, the guardian to the, uh, the gateway to paradise. And they have been stationed there by God himself to prevent, uh, totally prevent, a return of Adam and Eve to the blessed estate from which they were being driven out. And the sword was added, uh, certainly by way of emphasis, that there was no way back. The, the, the door was completely closed. There was no way for them to return. This was God's security against Adam going back and partaking of the tree of life and living forever. Adam would die. This is the legacy of sin, that Adam had been, and Eve had been expelled. Death had entered into the world as sin had entered into the world. And it's an entirely different world that he steps into. They've moved from paradise 
to a fallen world, the same world in which we all live day to day. So you've got these two guardians that are uh, stationed there, and they make the point that the effects of sin are twofold. One, and we'll touch on this in some detail, but certainly the, the fall uh, permanently impacted all mankind, not simply Adam and Eve, but all of us, as, as one of the Reform uh, Confessions or Catechism says, we all descended by ordinary generation from Adam, and therefore we sinned in him and fell in him in his first transgression. So we share the culpability of Adam, our head, uh, in his transgression, and we all are affected with that. Romans 5, 12, we'll, we'll look at that in a moment, uh, speaks very directly to that point. So the legacy of sin is a bitter legacy. Uh, and the juxtaposition of what they had experienced with uninhibited intimacy with God himself, where they heard his voice, and they enjoyed bliss, uh, no defects, no, no problems whatsoever in the garden. And now they had been ejected, forced out, driven out by God himself, and no return was possible. Derek Kidner, one of the commentators, makes a, a point that uh, Adam's way back is more than hard. It's resisted, and he cannot save himself. There is nothing that Adam can do to reverse the effects of his expulsion uh, from the fall. But it also talks about not only is man affected, but we need to understand that God himself uh, became an enemy, so to speak, of Adam and Eve. Romans 5, 10 speaks to that for while we were enemies, and that goes both ways. The sinner is an enemy of God, and God is an enemy of the sinner. What, what did he do? He sent his son to die for us so that that barrier that horrendous barrier could be breached through the cost of the sacrifice and the perfect life of the Lord Jesus himself. It's the only way back. But it's a dramatic exit at the end of chapter 3. Top of chapter, or pardon me, um, page 2 of the notes. Adam went on, the scripture tells us in, in chapter 5 of Genesis, to live over 900 years, 930 years, long lifespans, at least at that point in human history. But he would never, ever return to paradise. He would never be granted access to Eden uh, again. Uh, and he could not take of the tree of, the, of life and live forever. He would die at the end of 930 years. But during that time, it's important to realize that Adam did not live in a hopeless estate. He knew that there would be a deliverer that was forthcoming. How did he know that? Because uh, the Lord in his curse upon uh, Satan himself spoke in chapter 3 verse 15 about a mortal conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, a mortal conflict that would ultimately culminate in the total defeat of Satan himself. And of course that took place not only at the cross, but at the resurrection. Uh, both of those are, are important. We need to always remember not only the cross, but the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. But Adam understood, not to the detail that we have, because he did not have the fullness of revelation, but he understood clearly that there would be a time of restoration, that there would be a deliverer, that God would provide a rescue for him and for his wife. He knew the promise. He had heard the promise articulated in Genesis 3, 15. 
just recorded for us. And he also knew, because what had happened was God himself had taken the initiative to kill an innocent animal and to take the skin of the animal and clothe Adam and Eve in their nakedness and their shame uh, with the skins of an animal. Uh, Life was shed. Innocent life was shed. Why? To provide covering. It's a picture, a very clear picture, that the consequences of sin is death. It's horrendous. It's tragic. And a covering must be provided, and life must be taken. Blood is required. A sacrifice has to take place. All of this was being played out literally in the very presence of Adam and Eve, not only the promise in Genesis 3.15, but in Genesis 3.21, Adam and Eve, of course, had attempted to cover themselves through their own works, through picking leaves and whatnot, to fabricate their own covering, and it was unacceptable, completely inadequate. It was rejected by God. What did he do? He provided his own covering. That's the nature of salvation. God takes the initiative. He didn't instruct Adam and Eve how to do it. He didn't command Adam and Eve to slay an animal. He himself took the animal and killed the animal and provided the the skins so that they would be covered. They knew that they were naked. They knew they were ashamed. They knew that they were not in the same condition, that same estate that they had with God that they had enjoyed before. And the Lord God himself said, the consequences of sin is death. And the only way to be restored to a position of fellowship with me is to be covered. You have to be covered. And that's, of course, it pictures uh, the twofold work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've, we've spoken from time to time about uh, the obedience of Christ. The technical terms that the theologians will use is the active obedience and the passive obedience. I'm not particularly fond of active and passive, but what they mean by that, the active obedience, is his perfect life, his fulfillment of the law in all of that he did uh, during his lifetime upon earth. And a passive obedience is his shed blood where he became the propitiation of the Father's wrath so that he would exclaim at the end of his cross experience to tell us, it is finished. And he literally satisfied the wrath of God. Both of those are absolutely essential, both his substitutionary atonement and his perfect life. And, and so you've got really both of those pictured in a preliminary state, state or a picture with what God did when death was executed on an innocent animal and the skins were provided to cover. You, both of them are required. Uh, that the, the death has to be experienced, a sacrifice has to be made through an innocent counterparty, and they have to be covered themselves because they are not righteous. None of us are righteous. But Adam could still come and approach God. Uh, he brought an offering. And Abel and Cain, as we will see shortly, uh, brought offerings, and the Lord communicated to them uh, whether they were satisfactory or not. It's likely, we can't speak with absolute certainty, but it is probable uh, that they could go only so far as the gate to paradise. They, of course, could not cross that boundary, that line, but God himself communicated to them the status of their offerings and how he would respond to their offerings. So it's very likely that Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel could at least go back to the point from which they were rejected and they could understand what God had to say for them. They at least had that uh, means of access to God. 
But the, to recap, Genesis 3.24 tells us that Adam and Eve were forced out of paradise. So the consequences of sin, and it's important that we understand this because this is really the, the legacy of Genesis 3, and it plays itself out in biblical history. We'll see this in Genesis 4. We'll see it in, in Genesis 5, Genesis 6, Genesis 7, etc. The consequences of sin are everywhere to be seen in biblical history. But here you find the primeval origins of all of biblical history and, and so if we grasp what is happening in these opening chapters, then the rest of Scripture will come to life in a very new way, very important way for us. But sin separates us. It separates us in two ways. It separates us from life, and it separates us from fellowship and the blessed estate that we could have enjoyed with God himself before the entrance of sin into the world. When I say separates from life, the first thing after the expulsion of Adam from the garden is God said, lest he return and take from the tree of life and, and he would have life forever. That option was not available to him now as a fallen creature. How would he have life? Through the Messiah, the one who came to give life and he would have eternal life, but only through the work of the Messiah, not through his own reaching and taking fruit. Nothing that he could possibly do could give him life. He was condemned but he would ultimately be rescued by the Messiah who would come in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. But he is separated from life, and because of that, he's barred from paradise. You know, it, it's, uh, as we look at this, not only is he separated from life, but at the top of page 3, sin separates us uh, from the blessing of God, the, the, the unhindered unhindered presence of God. They had completely unhindered access to God himself. They heard his voice. They would speak to him. They heard him walking in the garden. They recognized his voice. They had perfect communion with him. And that was gone. And that's, that's the legacy of sin. A.W. Pink makes this, uh, this comment uh, to recap. He said, the moral significance of all of this is plain. It is impossible, or was impossible, for Adam and Eve to remain in the garden and continue in fellowship with the Lord. He, the Lord God, is holy, and that which defiles cannot enter his presence. Sin always results in separation. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and between yours and your sins have hid his face from you. It's important that we grasp that because that's our condition if we are outside of Christ. That is precisely the condition in which we find ourselves. That's the condition in which men and women are, are born. They're born alienated from God, not in communion with God. The scripture tells us that we are born dead in sin, that we are estranged from God. Colossians 1 tells us that we are in the domain of Satan himself. And we ultimately, as we turn to Christ, are rescued from the domain of Satan himself and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. The estate into which we were born is a dire condition, and it's all the consequences of Genesis 3. But he was cast out. And our own struggles day to day testify to the consequences of the fall. We see sickness. We see death. We see hardship. We see blatant sin. We see horrendous acts of man against man, woman against woman, the case, whatever the case may be. We see innocent lives being shed uh, at abortion clinics. We see over and over the legacy of Genesis 3, right before our very eyes. It's all a consequence of what took place in Eden. 
But James Boyce uh, reminds us uh, about two-thirds of the way down on page three, what has brought them to such a sorry state? The culprit is sin. The consequence is separation from the one who is altogether loving. Let us learn then that sin does matter and that the devil is wrong when he says that sin will not hurt. Sin disrupts the greatest of all relations, that, bet- that between a man or a woman and God. The theological implications of this text are, are profound, and so we'll be touching with the, the technical term martiology, the doctrine of sin, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, theology proper, the character of God. All of these aspects of theology are touched upon very, very clearly in these opening chapters of Genesis. The, the consequences of sin, the, the character of God, the condition into which we are born, uh, what is required so that we can have restored fellowship with God. All of this is literally portrayed uh, for us. Uh, and then Alistair Payne makes this comment, with Genesis in our hands, God has seen to it that our experience in life is a constant reminder of two great truths. And we need to see this. The day-to-day experience testifies uh, that God's majesty is revealed by creation. Romans 1 tells us that. And the fact that there is a problem between us and God. We, they couldn't physically see the issue, the, the moral issue that, that had developed between them and God. There was a breach. There was a spiritual breach that took place. They couldn't see that breach per se, but what they saw were the consequences of that breach. They saw uh, the, the ejection from paradise, and subsequently they would see death in their loved ones. And, and we see the same thing today. We see the consequences of sin. We can't visualize the, the judicial effects of sin on us and God, but he shows us all the consequences in our day-to-day experience, the, the difficulty of life, the sorrows of life, death itself, suffering, and we'll, we'll talk about that here just in a moment. Top of page four, what is the impact of sin? What's the impact of the fall? And, and four questions and answers from uh, one of the very powerful reform catechisms, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, an excerpt on questions 16. And we need to know this. We need to grasp this. This is critical that we understand what happened in the fall. This answers that question. Did all mankind, without exception, fall in Adam's first transgression? And the answer is yes. How? Because we all descended from Adam by ordinary generation. We sinned in him. We fell with him in his first transgression. It's important, brothers and sisters, that we realize this is not just simply um, Westminster scholars writing. You see the the scriptures that are provided there, and I've reproduced some of them. Every single statement is buttressed by direct revelation from God himself and the Holy Word. So this is not simply somebody's point of view theologically. This is being extracted directly from the Word of God. Romans 5.12, just as... Prepositions make such a difference in Scripture. Notice the the wording. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all because all sinned through, through Adam, Romans 5, 12. A little later in chapter 5, and this speaks of headship. Adam was our first head. Those of us who were in Christ, Christ is the last Adam. So you have the first Adam the historic Adam who sinned and we sinned in him and our deliverance is through the last Adam, our new head when we are in Christ. Romans 5.19 says this very specifically. 
as through one man, Adam's disobedience, the many, all of us, were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience, that's the active obedience of Christ, of the one, the last Adam, Jesus Christ himself, the many will be made righteous, constituted righteous, justified. Now we're going to see that that takes place with Abel. Abel was declared righteous. Cain was not. 1 Corinthians 15, since by a man, Adam, came death, so by a man, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection for the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And it, the, the, these prepositions are very important. It's simply saying, what's our identity? Are we presently identified with Adam, or are you identified with Christ? If you've repented of your sins, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith alone for your only hope of salvation. You are not in Adam. You are in Christ. If you haven't done that, if you have currently stepped aside from the, the, the salvation, which is offered only through the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in Adam, and all of the consequences of the fall are yours. Well, what estate did this bring mankind into? The fall brought mankind, all of mankind, without exception, into an estate of sin and misery. Well, what's the sinfulness of, of the condition? Four aspects. The, the sinfulness of that estate consists, number one, the guilt of Adam's first sin. We're all absolutely as guilty as Adam, as if we ourselves had stood by the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and taken the fruit and eaten it. Every single one of us equally culpable. The want or lack, the absence of original righteousness. Adam was born righteous, he's sinless, but that was lost. And we, we lose it in him. The corruption of the whole nature, our sinful nature. Our nature is corrupted all because of the fall. Together with all the actual transgressions which proceed from it. You could truthfully say that Adam became a sinner because he sinned. Today, you should know that we sin because we're sinners. Do you understand the difference? Adam was not a sinner at the inception of his life. He was sinless. He became a sinner because he transgressed the law of God. We are born sinners, and we sin because that's our nature. And it continues to compound our guilt before a holy God unless our guilt is covered through the blood and the, and the, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Ephesians 2, it makes this, this very clear. Paul writes, the Apostle Paul, you were, he's writing to the church, he's writing to believers in Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He goes on to say in verse 3, formerly you lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and mind, and were by nature, understand this, children of wrath. That's, that's our condition apart from Christ, children of wrath. Top of page 5. Well, if the fall brought all mankind into an estate of sin and misery, and we just looked at the sinfulness of that estate, what's the misery into which we are now experienced? And there are three aspects here with three subpoints. All mankind, by their fall, number one, lost communion with God. We talked earlier about sin separates us from unhindered intimacy with God and are under his wrath and curse. Number two. And number three, made liable to what? The miseries of this life, 
Our experience day to day shows us the miseries of this life. We live in a corrupt, fallen, sinful world. We swim in those waters every single day. We see it. Our, our souls should be in anguish over the sin that we see and experience. It, it should really grate on us to see the corruption around us and even in our own hearts. So the miseries in this life to death itself. Death is a consequence of sin and the pains of hell forever. That's the legacy of sin. Hell, the eternal conscious torment, is the future of every single person outside of Christ. And it has to be because the character of God has been offended in a mighty way. And the only way that he can deal with that is to judge. In Christ, we are delivered from that. But you need to understand that your state before you came to Christ or until you come to Christ is your certain future is eternal conscious torment in hell. But Jesus, and here's the, the, the good news and it's glorious news. Jesus came and said, what? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he satisfied. There was that sword that was barring entrance back into Eden. He took care of the sword for believers. Now we, we will ultimately be restored back to Eden. Not in this life. Not in this life. But because of the work of Christ, that sword that bars us from having unhindered communion with a holy God and a blissful experience is taken away. And that is our future if we are in Christ. God's justice is satisfied if we are in Christ. And eternal life is open to all of us if we are in Christ. So in Genesis 4, here's a transition, a very, very critical chapter that we have. And we're introduced to two um, spiritual lineages uh, in the children that Adam and Eve bore. And we are also... Uh, introduced to all the consequences of those two spiritual lineages. So we've got consequences and we've got these two sons. Well, the, the firstborn uh, from um, Adam and Eve, of course, I'm going to skip over this uh, to page six. I'm just going to go to a tale of two sons. Um, the firstborn of Eve uh, was Cain. The second born was Abel. And the name for her firstborn is very significant. Uh, Cain, literally, it comes from the verb gotten or I've got it. And she said in, in the scripture, it's recorded for us in Genesis 4 1, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, very likely, almost certainly, what she meant by that was she had received the promise. And you recall from Genesis 3.15 that there would be the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. You remember that? She knew that that child would be forthcoming. And it's almost certain that she looked at her firstborn and says, I've got it. It's happened. That's not going to play itself out, of course. We know that. But she had received the promise. She believed the promise. And she was ecstatic that God had given her a child. She, she goes on to say uh, that she got that child with the help of the Lord. That's the way her translators render it. It just it literally means she, that she had a child of the Lord. But the sense is that God had given her a child. And that's exactly the fulfillment. God had promised her that there, she would have pain in childbearing, but she would have children. 
And, and so here's this child, and she's the firstborn to open the womb, and she looks at this child, and she looks at the promise, and her faith, you remember, the faith of Adam and Eve was so evident. Do you remember how Adam named, first of all, her name was woman. You remember that? And then he named her Eve. You remember what Eve means? Life, the wellspring of life. He looked at the promise of Genesis 3.15, and he said, life. When I see my wife, I see life, because through her will come a descendant that will crush the head of the serpent. And he said, life. And she looked at Cain, and she said, got it. This is the one that you've given me with the help of the Lord. What was, she, what was in her mind? The fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 was, in fact, fulfilled, but not in Cain. But she had the certainty, she had the expectation that, guess what? Lord, you have given me a man-child, and you have been gracious to fulfill your promise. She didn't understand because they didn't have the fullness of revelation. All this is being played out. Redemptive history is literally being created before our very eyes in Genesis 3 and 4. She longed for that promised seed, and she named Cain accordingly. And it showed her faithfulness. It showed her trust in the Lord. Well, we'll go to the next page, page 7. And sometimes people will wonder about, is this just someone's point of view? Um, but it, 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 Leupold, uh, one of the esteemed uh, commentators, says this, uh, she expresses it as she does, affords that she expresses it as she does, affords proof that the mother of our race had not remained in sin, but had come to repentance and faith in God's promises. What he's saying is her behavior, her conduct, her testimony, her exclamation, Cain got it, gotten through the help of the Lord. I have a man child. Understand the context, understand what had just happened. They had been kicked out of Eden, and God gave her a man child. And she knew Genesis 3.15. Where was her confidence? Not in herself, but through the provision of the Lord. This would not be the fulfillment of that, but that was her trust. That was her, that was her confidence. And so they, they, they knew very little about what would ultimately transpire, but they trusted in what they knew, and they possessed the truth, and, and they were trusting in the gospel promise of Genesis 3.15. Again, you look back at Genesis 3.15, the promise, Genesis 3.21, God covers them with the skins of a slain animal through the death of another and covered their shame. God provides a child for, for, uh, for Eve. Uh, Adam names Eve life. Eve is looking at this child saying, I got it. You're literally seeing appropriation of the promise and this, the, the, the faith that they had that God would provide a deliverance. Well, Abel comes along and we don't know a lot about the name of Abel other than the fact that his name literally means breath or vanity. We're not exactly sure what to make of that. It could have meant the fragility of life, the fact that death would come to pass. We, we don't know exactly. Uh, maybe the fleeting nature of life in a fallen world. So we've got two sons, and then we have two sacrifices. And those sacrifices very likely were offered at the gate uh, that kept them from actually entering back into Eden because they, they offered it to the Lord. The scripture tells us that they offered it to the Lord and they heard the Lord's response to their offering. So there was a form of communion that they had. We can't speak with absolute certainty, but many people are of the view that they had at least access to that gate, but no further. 
but there was a way in which God was communicating uh, to them. Uh, but they brought uh, their offering to the Lord. That's what, very specifically, uh, we read that in, in chapter 4. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. That's chapter 4, verse 3. And um, and Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock um, and their fat portions And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. And so we're going to to stop there. But there's a lot to unpack just in that very brief uh, passage. So you've got two sons. uh, You've got uh, two offerings. uh, You've got two ways of approaching God. We'll unpack that. And two very different outcomes. The two sons, Cain and Abel. The two offerings. Look, look very carefully at the way this is expressed uh, in Genesis 4. Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. An offering of the fruit of the ground. He picked that produce himself. He cultivated that himself. It was the, the work of his own hands that he brought to God. Abel, verse 4, on his part, also brought... The very different offering of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. The very, very best that he had to offer. And the Lord had regard for Abel. Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. And that's all it says. But it was his work. Adam, uh, Abel brought the first, the, the choicest of the uh, animal that he had. And the, the fat thereof, the best of that portion, death was effected in making that offering. And, and so you've got two very different approaches. What do we know about these two offerings? Well, we know that God had no regard for the offering of Cain, and we know that he declared Abel righteous. Why is that? The New Testament gives us the answer in Hebrews 11, verse 4. Look at the page 8 of your notes. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he, Abel, obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. How did, how did he get his testimony that he was righteous? God testified that he was righteous. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Okay, well, let's unpack that. What was it about the offering that, that, that spoke about uh, belief or unbelief, or about faith or a lack of faith. And we see the nature of the two offerings. One simply brought something of what was available. He brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. doesn't say it was the best. doesn't say it was the first that came up out of the ground. It just says he brought some of it. Abel's offering, on the other hand, was very specific. He brought the first and the best. And death was required. Blood was shed. Cain came in a very perfunctory manner, in a somewhat um, casual manner, if I can use that term, in a just a formal manner, uh, just because of the nature of his offering. One, one of the commentators says it's, it's evident that the one gave because it was time and custom to give. This is Cain. It was pure formalism. The other one gave the best, pure, devout worship. That would be Abel. 
And so the contrast, uh, it, 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 if we were looking at this, we can unpack this a little bit later, but um, how do we know that this is what exactly transpired? Let your mind go back to Genesis 3.21. What, what did God do subsequent to the fall, subsequent to his promise? God took an innocent animal and killed the animal and took the skin of the animal and clothed the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He'd already given them an example of what restoration requires, blood and covering, blood and covering. They'd already, what, what did Adam had, had do first before God provided the covering? They went out and covered, got their own leaves, right? That's exactly what Cain did. He took some of the produce out of the ground. It was the work of his own hands. And God said, no, that's not acceptable. What did Abel do? Abel did exactly what God did, and that is an animal was shed, blood was sacrificed, life was taken, and a covering was, was offered to the Lord, or an offering was made to the Lord. God had already given them a very specific model of what was required to deal with sin. Blood had to be shed, a sacrifice had to be made, a, a covering had to be provided, and, and, and so another commentator makes the point, why would Abel have brought the, the, a lamb, um, or the animal that he had, and the very best that he had? They were vegetarians at this point. Why would he be killing an animal? They weren't eating animals at this point. They, that didn't happen until later. Why would Abel have taken the life of an animal unless he knew, based on Genesis 3.21, what God did said, this is what I need to do because God has already shown me the, the critical effects of sin. And I need to respond in a way that God honors. And he did. And the testimony of God himself, according to Hebrews 11, is exactly what I just told you, that Abel acted in faith. Conversely, Cain did not act in faith. People have wrestled with well, why would God reject one and accept the other? And the answer is fairly straightforward. If you look carefully at the context and you look at the example that God himself had given them in Genesis 3.21, and they had been taught by Adam and Eve, their, father, their mom and dad, this is what God did for us. You need to do this yourself. And, and so you, you look at the approach. You take some of whatever you've got as opposed to, I'm going to give God the absolute best that I've got. And it's a costly gift. I'm giving him the result of someone else's life, the, the animal's life that was shed. You know, as I reflect on this, there's so much that we can learn about what it is that pleases God. And, and we have two different pictures of worship here. Cain models a formal, heartless worship, and Abel models a sacrificial worship. And this, over the last week or so, I've been reading a wonderful book by Nathan Eshelman called Worthy. It's all about worship. And he points us to Westminster Confession of Faith 21.1, which is at the bottom of page 8. And all of this is substantiated by direct quotations from Scripture as well. The light of nature shows us that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good, and does good unto all, and therefore is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, 
trusted in and served with all heart, all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. That's how God is to be worshipped, feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, served. And he goes on to say at the top of page 9, and we need to understand this, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. Do you understand what that means? God determines what pleases him. God determines what worship looks like. We don't determine what worship looks like. God tells us in his word what pleases him. The devices of man are not to be pursued. God has given us instructions about how we are to approach him. And when we approach him using our own so-called wisdom, whatever the inclination of our hearts is, we are directly violating the pattern that God has given. It's called the regulative principle of worship. And the, essentially, the, the argument is God has the prerogative because he's God to determine how he will be worshiped. And, and so we have... Between these two, Abel is following the pattern that God had established. Cain chose his own approach. And having, cho- having chosen his own approach, he was soundly rejected. He was given an opportunity to repent, but he chose not to. He got angry with God, and we'll pursue that next time, Lord willing. But Abel pursued God in precisely the way that God had ordained, through the, through the, the slaying of an animal. And so worship is to be done in a way that God has directed through his own revelation. And so you look at the, the, the implications and the applications, worship, what is worship like? And here we have with Cain and Abel, two religions, two types of worship. What do I mean by two religions? Cain brought the, the results of his, the work of his own hands. He cultivated this, this fruit, vegetables, whatever the case may be. Adam, uh, pardon me, Abel didn't create that sheep. He took the life of a sheep and it, it, life was shed. And, and so you've got two entirely different approaches. One is saying, I'm just going to give you some of whatever I've got. And the other one is saying, I realize that death is required, that, that worship is sacrificial, that the offering has to be what God has ordained. So we have two different examples uh, between them. Uh, top of page And I'm just going to read this for you because I I want to summarize this. George Whitfield, just so you'll know that this is an accurate understanding. Uh, George Whitfield, what were the coats that God had made to put on our first parents, but types of the application of the merits of the righteousness of Christ to believers' hearts? We were told that those coats were made of the skins of beasts. Those beasts were slain in sacrifice in commemoration of the great sacrifice, Jesus Christ, thereafter to be offered. And the skins of the beasts thus slain, being put on Adam and Eve, they were thereby taught how their nakedness was to be covered with the righteousness of the Lamb of God. Top of page 11. Hebrews 11, I I, I cited this earlier, but the, the, the revelation of God is that God's summary of what Abel had done was that he was righteous. God made that determination, and Abel heard that. And Cain very likely also heard it. And Cain was angry with God uh, because his offering was not accepted. Hebrews 11 goes on to say a very interesting thing down at the bottom of page 11. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. 
I think it's entirely arguable that the rest of Scripture is a testimony to what Abel exemplified, that God is approached through faith. Look at Genesis 15, 6, when the promise was made to Abraham that he would have a seed as numerous as the uh, sands on the, on the shore, the, the stars of the sky. What did Abraham do? He looked and he, and he, and he believed, and God declared him righteous. And, but who was the progenitor of all of this? Abel was the first example of a, one, a descendant of Adam and Eve to show what justification by faith is all about. It's obeying God's promise and appropriating it by faith alone, not through the work of our own hands, but through the sacrifice that was provided. And so Abel continues to testify. Abel's voice, I would say, was testified in the Reformation when justification by faith alone was rescued from the darkness of Catholicism. And that the voice of Abel continues to resound throughout history that God is only satisfied with a, a, the, the justification by faith alone. And, and so he set the standard. He, he gave us a very specific example. Page 12, just to summarize where we are, there's a hymn that uh, summarizes this very, very accurately. Just the second stanza, Rock of Ages by Augustus Toplady. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? In other words, emotional highs and lows are not going to make it, not going to do it. Could my tears forever flow? In other words, sentimentality, emotion is not what it is. All for sin could not atone. Thou, God, must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. That's really what we see in Genesis 4 with these offerings of Cain and Abel and the response of God to those two offerings. We see two sons, we see two offerings, we really see two religions. We see the religion of self-help and the religion of faith trusting in God's direction of sacrifice is required to be redeemed and two entirely different outcomes, acceptance and rejection. But even the rejection, God in his grace gave Cain an opportunity to repent and he didn't. He became angry with God. People do that today when you share the gospel with them and you talk about the exclusivity of Christ. How many times do they get angry? That's what Cain did. God is giving them an opportunity to repent. God is giving them an opportunity to redirect their approach to God. And unlike Abel, Cain and his legacy continue to get angry with God about the way that he has ordained that they can be rescued. God provided a way. The humble will appropriate that way, and the angry will go to perdition. It's a sobering thing, but we find all of this in Genesis 4, which is rooted in Genesis 3. Let me conclude.